Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Good Music Podcast. I'm Lucas. And I'm Justin. Thank you so much for tuning in. If this is your first time listening to us, thank you and welcome. If you like what you hear, then please hit the subscribe button, leave us a review and rating on whatever platform you are listening on. Also, if you want to donate to this channel, there's a link in the description of the episode that will take you to the corresponding page. A small monthly donation equal to a convenience store snack will help us to up our production value as well as allow us to do some new spinoffs on the channel. And don't forget to check out our Facebook page where we interact with all of you and talk about other things going on in the music world. Now that that's out of the way, let's get into the real stuff. As always in the music world, Lucas, there's always something happening and this week, of course, is no exception. So what's going on? So we're in the age of the extended farewell tours right now. We've got so many of them going on. We've got um, Elton John doing his. We've got Kiss that's just about finished with theirs. And Slayer just finished theirs. And then we have another one that's going on that's had a lot of interesting hiccups throughout its process. And that's uh, Ozzy Osbourne's farewell tour. And this is uh, called his... No More Tours, which I don't know if you're getting the play on words right there. One of his most popular songs was called No More Tears. Right. And so he's calling this No More Tours. He's got um, one of his most famous guitar players back with him. Uh, have you ever heard of Zach Wild? Yes. So he rose to fame being Ozzy's guitar player in the late 80s and early 90s. And then went off and had a very successful solo career of his own. But now he is back with Ozzy. And... Um, They've been attempting to do this leg of the tour. This is the uh, the European leg of the tour. They've been trying to do it for like over a year. And Ozzy keeps either getting sick or hurt and they have to keep pushing it back. And it's just kind of been this really interesting thing to watch unfold. Every time you think that the tour is ready to go, something happens to cause the tour to get pushed back once again. Which... I mean, it's Ozzy Osbourne. You just never really know what you're going to get with him. Yeah, he is definitely a very accident-prone person. Like, if you ever watched the show The Osbournes, like, he almost burnt the house down one time trying to make a grilled cheese sandwich. Uh, He got in a serious crash in in a four-wheeler one time. And um, just for some reason, this last tour that he's been on just everything has kept happening he's gotten the flu he got staph infections in his thumb which he had to have surgery on That's which is like really ran- really random <laughs> and then he had this really bad fall where he dislodged a bunch of metal rods in his back and that was at his house right yeah which i mean who knows what he was actually doing <laughs> he probably just like fell speaking of Ozzy i feel like i saw that he either had a new single come out or he had an album he, that just came out. He's working on an album. Got it. And, uh, yeah, the the new song was just released for it. I haven't listened to it yet. Although I did hear his recent uh, collaboration with Post Malone. Did you like that one? I surprisingly liked it. Yeah, I, I think it's pretty good. I have kind of been surprised overall how much I've not disliked Post Malone. He's got some good stuff, man. Yeah, he's not who I thought he was just looking at him and hearing that he's like the new big like hip-hop star. I totally had in my mind that he was going to sound one way and I've been I won't say that I've liked it, but I've I've liked it more than I thought I would. So, Ozzy's been staying active and he's not saying that he's retiring from the music business. He's just he's saying no more tours as the as the name of the tour suggests. Right. So 
Whether or not he's actually going to finish the store <laughs> will remain to be seen. But it is interesting that he's got Judas Priest with him as his, um, I don't know if they're the opening act or if they're co-headlining. Like, in my mind, Judas Priest opens for no one. So, um, although if they had to open for one person, they could only open for Ozzy because Ozzy's the only one that predates them in the metal world. I mean, he's really the grandfather, he, as you would think. Yeah, he's, he's the Prince of Darkness. You know, he can have whoever he wants to open for him. So, um, stay tuned. We, there, there might be something else that happens to old Ozzy here before this tour is over. All right, let's get into this week's podcast. This week, we are talking about probably one of the most interesting musical artists of all time. Yes, um, someone that has managed to become one of the most recognizable figures, not just in music, but like all of pop culture. Absolutely. And that's David Bowie. David Bowie. David freaking Bowie. What an anomaly. Yes, a man of many talents and many looks. Many literal looks. Yes. Um, I mean, just he's he's transcended where he, the medium that he started off in. Like, he's not just known as a musician. Like, he's known as a fashion icon. He's known as a social issue icon. He's He's just, he's become like, just this thing that just sits above all of what you think that he should be contained into and just became David Bowie. I mean, a couple weeks ago we were talking about Kanye West. To me, David Bowie is like the original Kanye West. He, He really was. I mean, just a man that defied every single boundary that you put around him. And he always manifested his creativity in these different characters that he would create. And they were kind of were all like showing what he was going through at that particular time. Mm. And so kind of every episode that we return to Bowie, I want to look at a different one of these characters. And so we're going to be starting with the first famous character that he made, which was the Ziggy Stardust persona. Before we get into that, though, when... You hear David Bowie, you often think of just the one person, David Bowie. Mm -hmm. But there's really more to his band, really. Yes. So he's had a lot of different lineups throughout the years. And so um, the lineup, though, that I wanted to look at in this uh, episode is the band that was playing during the Ziggy Stardust era, the first era of his career. And that band consists of... Uh, Mick Ronson on the electric guitar, who ended up becoming, you know, kind of legendary in his own right. Sure. Uh, you've got another Mick in the band, Mick Woodmansey on the drums. Uh, he had two bass players during this time. He had Tony Visconti, who ended up also being his producer, and Trevor Boulder. And then you had my favorite piano player of all time. For Rick, sure. Rick Wakeman. Just that man. That man. <laughs> I could go on a whole discussion about him. This is a man that wears a wizard cape on stage while he plays. I'll just leave it at that. (laughs) I mean, I want to be this guy. Well, before you take off in that character, let's get to the story about David Bowie. Yeah, so David Bowie is not his real name. As we're starting to learn about a lot of these people, like Stevie Wonder wasn't, that wasn't his real name. Um, I mean, just... Listen to this unassuming name, David Robert Jones. It's very plain. I know. 
Like, it's amazing that such an extraordinary, unique guy had such an ordinary name. And who became David Bowie. <laughs> yes. Born on January 8th, 1947. His parental situation was very interesting because they had him very, very late in life, and they were not married at the time. Oh. And I like to think that that kind of added to his um, unique way of looking at things because he wasn't born under ordinary circumstances in an ordinary stable home. Right. It was kind of different for what was going on. Like in the 40s, that seems like it would have been a really strange thing to happen because that was a much more conservative time. Absolutely. He was very interested in music early on in his career. And it was when he heard rock music that he really started to pay attention. Um, you know, when he was a kid, this was when the very first wave of rock and roll was coming in. This is when you had Elvis and mm. Chuck Berry. But there was one that stood out to him. And it makes so much sense now when you look back on it, and that's Little Richard. I don't know if you know who Little Richard is. I actually don't know who that is. We'll talk about him at some point. But Little Richard was kind of like the first controversial figure as far as how he presented his gender and his sexuality. Like, he was kind of the first one to wear, like, kind of these outrageous costumes. Interesting. Um, And the way he would say things and the way um, he would present himself... He kind of was the first one to have this androgynous feel to him. Like a lot, there's a lot of rumors going around at the time. Is Little Richard gay? Mm -hmm. Is he bisexual? Is he actually been a woman this whole time, just dressing up as a man? I mean, you look at it now and it's very tame compared to what would come later. But at the time, he was very controversial. But David Bowie saw him and heard him and declared to himself, I am going to be the white Little Richard. (laughs) Boy, if he had known that not only he would become that, but he would even surpass his idol to become the androgynous rock symbol. So he starts his first band then at 15. Yes, right from the gate is already uh, making a name for himself. And uh, also during this time, one of the very famous facial features of David Bowie comes about when he gets in a brawl with one of his friends he gets a punch right in his eye and it causes one of his pupils to dilate oh wow and it leads to a lot of the misconception that he has two different colored eyes but in reality it's just that one's dilated and so it looks like it's different color but it really adds to the uh, otherworldliness that he would develop as he got older speaking of which he then officially changes his name yeah, so he his original stave name was Davy Jones, kind of, you know. Mm. And uh, he found out that uh, there was another musician that was starting to become very popular called Davy Jones. He was in a band uh, called The Monkees. So I'm sure he got mistaken quite a bit. Yeah, and he was just like, if I get popular, like they're going to you know, be like, which Davy Jones is it? Is it this one? Is it this one? Of course, he had no idea how big he would eventually become. Of course. And, you know, Davy Jones just isn't that cool of a name. No. And so he he always had a fascination with um, American history. And he ended up coming across Jim Bowie. He was a very famous Texas historical figure. Have you ever seen the movie The Alamo? Yeah. So that's one of the characters in that is James Bowie. I think is how Americans pronounce it. <laughs> and the Bowie Knife was named after him. And so he just had a fascination with that. I was just like, okay, I'll be David Bowie from now on. (laughs) So he starts a band, gets a new name, and then he writes an album. Yes, it was a self-titled album. 
this album is terrible. <laughs> I listened to it and it it's astonishingly bad. Like it's this weird mix of like because this was 1967 when this came out, so I think that this is when Sgt. Pepper mm. is out. Pink Floyd's first album Got is out. It. So this is the time frame we're in right now. Lots of experimentation. Yeah, so it's a very experimental album, but the things that he's mixing together are like psychedelic mixed with like bubblegum pop music mm. and like show tunes, like music hall type stuff. And fuzzy guitars. Oh, yeah. Uh, for sure. It's an album that just borders this line of being, like, too sweet and innocent sounding, yet at the same time, some of his lyrics are, like, really weird and dark. And it's just, it creates this weird imbalance that you're just like, I don't I don't know. This is kind of <laughs> creepy. And not in the good way. Like, sometimes I like intentionally creepy music. This, just, it's not good. You could tell that he just didn't know what he was doing yet what his own style was. And he was searching. And so that really leads him then into a career in theater. Yeah, he was just like, you know, maybe this music thing's not for me, at least not right now. So he pursues uh, performing arts. And very interestingly, specifically, is he does a lot of mime training. Okay. Which really came in handy with his showmanship on stage. He really knew how to get the most out of his body language, out of his movements. And especially when he would transition to his second character after Ziggy Stardust, when he became the Thin White Duke, um, you could tell that he pulled a lot from his mime training at that time. So um, this, this theater wasn't just like this random detour. It ended up becoming very instrumental into becoming who he was as a performer. It was an essential ingredient. And then this leads us into a very special moment. Yes. So he eventually returns back to music in 1969 and uh, finally gets somewhat of a hit single with Space Oddity. Which just so happened to coincide with the very first moon landing. Yes. He actually did not write about it. I'll talk a little bit more about it when we talk about the song, but ended up being a top five UK hit. Wow. Not bad, but it didn't do anything in the US, and that's kind of really where it counts. Mm -hmm. And just kind of everyone saw the song as like a novelty song. Like, they weren't seeing this as a, this is a bold new song from a brand new artist that's going to shake the rock world. They're just kind of like... Uh, he's kind of cashing in on the moon stuff. And so, you know, yeah, it's a good song. It, it goes well with what's going on, but you know, he's one and done. There was a lot of novelty acts like that around the time. People just assumed he was another one of those. And that thought kind of pervades into the second album, which also flops. Yeah, it doesn't do very well, but it's a shame because it's actually a really good album. I actually really like it. It's got a lot of really cool moments and you can tell that he's, narrowing in on that creative muse like there's some songs on there like signet committee wild out boy from free cloud and memory of a free festival they're actually really good and they're really epic and you can tell that he's already at this point thinking outside of the box but doing it in a way that still works now typically once a band or an artist really kind of finds himself in that zone where they're narrowing down what they're wanting to do good things happen Yes, although it doesn't quite happen immediately, but he does get his band at this point. This is when he collects the mix 
uh, Mick Ronson and Mick Woodmansey. Uh, he's got Visconti with him, Rick Wakeman. And um, he kind of starts to gather the mates that he needs in order to start making this band happen. And he gets married. Yes. Um, probably the person that influences his art the most for the next uh, few years Angela Barnett. They got married in 1970, and she's the one that really pushes him to go for that androgynous look. Mm. She's the one that starts telling him to wear dresses. She actually tells him that they're going to have an open relationship, that even though they're married, they can see whoever they want of whatever gender that they want. And so she kind of really encouraged him not only to do that in his personal life, but to intermix that with his art. And so that leads to his third album, The Man Who Sold the World, where on the cover you see him in this elegant gown. But it's not just him because soon the band starts wearing costumes when they're on stage too. Yes, and uh, that doesn't go well with the audience. <laughs> they get booed off stage a lot. And you can tell that they're, they're trying to figure it out because David Bowie had this intense love for avant-garde music. Sure. And so he was always kind of looking for ways to express himself that was really different, really shocking, and um, and things that were outside of the conventions of what the rock music scene was going on at that time. So now we're in 1970. This is now post-Beatles. Mm-hmm. This is the era where the biggest bands in the world are the Rolling Stones, Led Zeppelin, The Who. Yeah. Um, that's that's where Rocket is right now. And David Bowie's kind of trying to figure out where he can take it, yeah. where he can make it his own and where he can do something unique. And that third album, The Man Who Sold the World, he has a very interesting musical evolution that happens there. Because um, that, that second album is very acoustic-driven. It's got a lot of folkiness to it, even though he is experimenting a lot. Um he takes on a darker tone on this record. Uh, he's talking about serial killers. He's talking about mental illness. He's even talking about being in a sexual relationship with the devil himself. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's really weird stuff. And you can tell that he's trying to stir the pot. He's trying to get his name out there, uh, not just on the music alone, but on who he is. And um, he is getting his name out there, but in, not in the ways that is benefiting his music career. He's kind of be- starting to become a tabloid star. But then comes Hunky Dory. His first really brilliant album. Oh, man. This is such a great album. And you can tell this is where finally the, the persona and the music fit. And he's writing songs that really express who he is as a person. And I just love this record. It's got so much versatility to it. And uh, it's got a lot of experimentation. Like, if you listen to the song Andy Warhol off of that album, like, he's full-on into the avant-garde at this point. For sure. But then you also have a song like Changes that becomes one of the iconic hits of his career. And really kind of comes out of left field, like knowing what else he had done, really, by that point. Yeah, up to that point, like, this album was a marked departure, but it was the right kind of departure. And during the promotion of this album, he really grabs the media attention when he announces that he's gay. And this really confused people because he was married to a woman, and he just had a son. 
And so they were just kind of like, wait, what are you just saying you are? Because in his life, there's never a point to where he like comes out with a boyfriend or there's like a, a very famous male lover that he has. Although there is a really strong rumor that he at one time had an affair with Mick Jagger, who's the lead singer I of the did Rolling hear that. Stones. Yes. That's neither confirmed nor denied. So he becomes this really big star with a Ziggy Stardust. Yeah, so after Hunky Dory is when he finally breaks through uh, this album being a mouthful, the rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. <laughs> so the Spiders from Mars is his backing band. That's kind of the, yeah. the, the persona they take on while he becomes Ziggy. Pretty much everything that he had been collecting over the years, all of the musical influences, all the fashion influences, he kind of rolls it all up into one and distills it into this record. It's not quite a concept record. It's It loosely tells a story, but there's also songs in there that have nothing to do with the story. But it's pretty much kind of like his story. He's presenting himself as this alien that has come from another world to be like the new messiah of rock and roll music. And to become this this big star. And it's like the the album actually speaks that into existence for him. It's the album that makes him a big star. But just like in every other story that we've talked about, about a band, when they hit their high point, things start to go downhill. Yes. He hits his high point financially, creatively, but then on the inside, he really starts to go down. He did not expect to get this level of fame at this point. And also the drugs really start to take a hold. Of course. Cocaine, man. Cocaine will get you. Because at that point, cocaine was like not considered like a bad thing to use. Like yeah. Everyone used it because they were just like, oh, it's a, it's a stimulant. It'll get you in that creative zone and you can, you, know, you can survive the rigorous touring schedule if you just have a ton of cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> Which in hindsight is just like... What? <laughs> oh, no, yeah. it's It was a terrible idea, but, you know, it was normal at the time. And he got to the point to where he could really couldn't tell the difference between reality and performance. Mm. Like, he really was having trouble separating his character from his real life to where he was Ziggy Stardust everywhere, not just on the stage or just when he was doing interviews. And he realized that if he didn't kill this character that he had just created, he would be consumed by it. And so he would become someone new, but that would be for another episode. Well, there you go. That is David Bowie in a nutshell. But before we sign off and go into our six songs, what are some characteristics and influences people need to know about David Bowie? So David Bowie didn't create glam rock, but he definitely popularized it. He was kind of the first one to like make it really big with glam rock. So glam rock is one of the most important rock movements of the 70s. Pretty much lasts from like 71-ish to about 76. Kind of Bohemian Rhapsody was kind of like the crowning achievement of glam rock. And then after that, that's when punk and disco took over and killed glam rock. Um, but I mean, you know, without Bowie, you probably wouldn't have had bands like Kiss, where, you know, you've got this theatric and all the makeup and the yeah. costumes and the big stage shows. Um, obviously, you wouldn't have Queen. Elton John wouldn't have done what he had done without Bowie. And then you also have the um, the experimental avant-garde side that David Bowie brought as well. He wasn't just making mindless radio 
pop. He was making very intelligent music that achieved a very specific purpose. And he was a very big influence on that scene as well. And something we've talked about already, he really becomes like this shining beacon for outcasts. Yes. He himself was the ultimate outsider. And he was constantly inviting people to come into this reality, this other dimension that he was creating. And um, he really showed that it doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter what you're interested in. It doesn't matter um, where you've come from. That if you listen to my music, you're part of a bunch of people that have nowhere to go. And now you have somewhere to go. And I think that that is the biggest thing that has sustained him over the years is that he always brought people hope and brought people a sense of belonging. He really became an icon for the LGBT community. Um, he was like pretty much like the first open artist, although not quite sure if he really meant what he said. But I mean, even to say that in general, that was a big deal. And so, I mean, yes, he had mass appeal. He had the pop songs. He had the big hits. But his enduring legacy was really being a shepherd for the discarded members of society. And that's what he's really remembered for. There you have it. That is David Bowie in a nutshell. I know we've only talked about his first character that he's come up with in Ziggy Stardust, but we'll talk more about that. But for now, we're going to take a quick break, and when we get back, we're going to talk about our six songs that represent David Bowie. Stay tuned. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, and with that, let's get into our first song from David Bowie, and that is Changes. Yes, Changes. This song is really prophetic about what Bowie's career would be and about all of the characters that he would inhabit over the years. Um, this is kind of like the song that like sums him up, I feel, because he was always changing. And, you know, when I listen to the song, I feel like it's a great summary of him, like as we said Mm -hmm. But really because when you listen to a lot of his discography, it's not what you expect. No. It's always making changes. And in my opinion, this is what has allowed him to have what I think is the longest relevant career of any musician that I've ever heard of. As far as how long he kept making albums that actually mattered. And you know how you have these artists that like... They keep making albums, and you're just like, dude, just stop. You're not making good songs anymore. Right. But David Bowie, like, constantly made stuff that not only was great, but actually, like, impacted music. Mm. Through the 70s, through the 80s, through the 90s, through the 2000s, even all the way up till he passed away in 2016. Like, his last album, like, a lot of people call it his masterpiece. So one of the things that I really love about this song is how the song starts, like how it has this building instrumental. Mm-hmm. And that uh, that piano line, it it sounds so strange when you hear it because it's not, it doesn't sound very tonally centered. Yeah. But I think that that's what gives it its character and its charm. And again, props to Rick Wakeman. I'm going to sing his praises all the time. And then in kind of true David Bowie fashion, the chorus just feels like such a drastic turn from the verses. It's a change. 
You see what we're doing here? I mean, this is where the genius of David Bowie kind of comes in. Yes. I believe it was Mick Ronson that had once said that it was just like, Bowie didn't like to write pop songs, but he could write pop songs better than just about anyone else that he knew. And that just like when he had to write a pop song, that it was always like a big thing. And he really knew how to make music interesting. Like so much of his music you think kind of has a formula to it and you just never really know what to expect. Yeah. And uh, the lyrics also are just really indicative about everything that he would be in his career. Like you look at the line, uh, look out you rock and rollers, pretty soon you're going to get older. Yeah. Like, he was already making a statement that he wasn't going to be like the other rock musicians. And he ended up being right. As everyone else got older, he kept staying relevant. And in a way, he, he remained musically young and youthful. And uh, I also love the line, uh, and these children that you spit on as they try and change their world are immune to your consultations. Again, that kind of ties into what I was saying earlier about he always knew how to draw in the people that were disenfranchised and the people that were being ignored and being criticized for being different. And he was just like, "Mm, no, these are my people and we're going to change the world. Now, towards the end of the song, we get a taste of the famous Bowie sax. Oh, yeah. And do you know who played that sax? David Bowie. Yes, he did. I mean, talk about... Again, I mean, we've said it. The guy is incredibly talented. Yeah. So, yeah, he's he is his own sax player. He he won't always be his own sax player, but in the early days, he definitely was. Um, surprisingly, the song initially was not a hit. That is really surprising. But uh, after he... This actually happened to quite a few of his songs. After he hit big with Ziggy Stardust, he re-released a lot of these early singles, and they ended up becoming big hits after the fact. What's so funny to me is this song... Like, considering the time period that it was in, like, it's a very early Beatles-like sounding track. It is. Um, Yeah, you're right. It's kind of interesting. I think, again, the reason why it didn't is because just his reputation preceded him a little too much at that point. But then again, once he finally broke big, it was kind of like everyone realized, oh, yeah, this is a masterpiece song. All right. That gets us into our next song, Suffragette City. I love this rock feel and the callbacks that are in this song. Oh, yeah. Like, I don't think you can objectively say this is his best song, but to me, this is the one I have the most fun listening to. Absolutely. It is a really fun song. Yeah, and it has an energy to it that's not really that common in Bowie's discography. Yeah. Like, it's got, like a punk aggression to it. And again, punk didn't even exist at this point. Mm-hmm. Like you could almost see this as like a pre-punk song. It's got some really interesting instrumentation. That piano riff is really interesting. Mm-hmm. And then the guitar solo is considering like how much of a rock song this is. It doesn't really feel like a classic rock guitar solo. Like even the tone of it, it's, it's very dark mm-hmm. and it's really short. <laughs> Yeah, it is. To me, this song is like the perfect glam rock song. Yeah. Because it has all of the sounds and all of the the style and substance that went into what was really going on in the glam scene at that time and what he started. 
I just love that the lyrics are just about like a girl. Like if, <laughs> it's like he's known so much for writing these in, these intelligent, thoughtful lyrics, and literally the song is just about how he's got a feminist girlfriend. Yeah, and then you have this ending into this wham bam, thank you, ma'am. That's my favorite part of the song because <laughs> I love how you um, you think that the song's about to end. And it builds, build, 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 and you think it's the end, and he like just screams that out, and you go right back into it. Oh man, that ending has such a great synth sound in there. Yes, it which does. for the time period, I mean, is amazing. Because like you almost kind of have to like think about it, like, wait, what is that? And then you're like, oh, that's some synth work in there. Because originally that was supposed to be saxophone. Right. But he didn't feel like the sound was um, broad enough. And so he instead was able to kind of find a synth line that mimicked a full sounding saxophone. And then, of course, you have this build again, mm-hmm. which into the ending. Yeah. And I think that it's, uh, I think it's just a, a really brilliant, like, if you take away the whole fake ending and then real ending, like, it's a good song, but. That's like the part of the song that just elevates it to me. Right. And it's the part that I enjoy the most in the song. And, and I just love the chorus as well. And that gets us into our next song, Starman. Yeah, so this is another song from the Ziggy Stardust album. And this is the song that turned him into the superstar. That's what I thought. So Space Oddity was a hit, but again, like I said, it didn't, it didn't push his career forward that much it gave him just enough to be able to keep going which thank goodness he had it had he not had space oddity who knows if he had kept going but he didn't have another song even make it onto the charts until starman and it became a top 10 hit the thing that really sealed the deal is when he got on a show called top of the pops do you know about this show i don't so top of the pops is a really important tv show most i would say mostly in the 70s And what it would do is it would come on every week and they would show the artists that were really popular that week, like which ones were having the biggest record sales and their singles were being played on the radio the most. And they would invite that artist on stage and they would do like a miming along with the actual track. It wouldn't be like a live performance Mm. because they want people to hear the song as it actually sounds. So they would get up there, they'd have like, you know, their instruments would not be turned on. They had like fake drums. Like remember in that scene of Bohemian Rhapsody? When they're about to play Killer Queen, and they're like, he's like hitting the drums, and he's just like, "What is this?" This is oh yeah yeah yeah. They were on top of the pops. Gotcha. That was one of their performances as they played Killer Queen on there. So that's what David Bowie did with Starman, and that was the debut of his Ziggy Stardust look with the big costume Uh, and the makeup, uh and that was kind of like a defining moment of his career because that was the the time that like he debuted himself as this person and everyone was just like oh my gosh this is so cool i want to find out more about this and there's a lot of musicians that have like said that looking back that that was like the moment that they decided i want to be a rock and roll guy so it was kind of you know starman really led to that moment for him so you know how we always talk about there's usually that one song that was never meant to be on the album and gets added last minute. Yes. Starman was that song. Of course it is. The album was done, and the producer said, we don't have a hit single on here. And so David Bowie went back into the studio, really quickly wrote Starman, <laughs> and they said that everyone in the studio knew at that point, this is it, this is the hit song that we need. 
And, of course, it ultimately becomes one of his biggest songs at the time, of course. Yeah, and it really kind of follows him past that time as well. Um, I watched a really fun concert last week where it was a really cool concept that he was playing on live TV. This was like in the early 2000s. And people could call in and make requests. And so Mm. they had to be ready to play whatever song that people threw at them. And Starman was one of the ones that they requested. And it was really cool to see his take on it as, you know, someone in his 60s. -hmm. And it it was a really cool rendition. You should look it up. Okay. And I just love the message on this. A message of hope. Of this being coming from the sky and proclaiming rock and roll music. And telling them that, you know, you're going to save the world through rock music. And I think that that just is a message that everyone can get behind. I can sure get behind it. Of course. And that gets us into, of course, a song we've already talked about quite a bit, but we're going to go into more detail, and that is Space Oddity. Yeah, so I didn't say this on the previous song, but I'm considering this group of three songs to be like the Space Trilogy Mm. of the set. So you've got Starman, now we've got Space Oddity, the second one. And I wanted to slow things down a little bit with this song, and we're also going to travel back. This was his first hit. And the song was inspired when David Bowie went to go see the movie 2001 A Space Odyssey, stoned out of his mind. Of course. Because, you know, that's pretty much the only way you can watch that movie. Not saying that I have, but, (laughs) you know, so I've heard... Sure, sure. (laughs) And and so, like, the the title is a play on words from, from Space Odyssey, Space Oddity... And it's one of his signature songs. Oh, yeah. We really kind of almost have his first kind of character with Major Tom, Mm -hmm. which a lot of people think is the name of the song. A lot of people say, what's that Major Tom song? And uh, there actually ended up being a song called Major Tom in the 80s. That's like a a German, like, electronic dance song. Wow. The song is actually sung in German. Of course it is. And it became an international hit. It was like number, it was like hit number 14 on the charts, oh something gosh. like that. And it's called Made. And the song is actually a sequel to Space Oddity because he loved the song so much that he wanted to write his own version of it. Mm. And uh, so this song is the launch pad, no pun intended, of his career. There's some really interesting things. I mean, just like in every David Bowie song. But there's some interesting stuff in this song, particularly one, there's some really interesting panning with the vocals. Yes. And you've got the effect of like hearing the countdown going in the yes. background while he's singing. And the album that this is on, that second record, which is another self-titled album. He had two self-titled albums in a row, which was really confusing. It's good, but none of it matches how great Space Oddity is, how creative yeah. it is, and just how interesting all the parts are. Like, it's really a special song. Just all the guitar parts and the arrangement of it, that acoustic break with the hand Ugh. claps. It's so good. And then how it explodes into that saxophone and guitar solo at the end. Like, yeah. It's so funny because this song starts out so slow and, like, really kind of, like, with a lot of tension. And then all of a sudden you get, like, this stank face, like, breakout, and you're just like, Mm. Very psychedelic. Very, very psychedelic. And I mean, pretty much kind of insinuating that Major Tom died out there in space, met with a horrible fate. Mm. 
I mean, you know, when you have lines saying your circuit's dead and they can't reach him, and he's like, you know, saying that he can't control his spaceship, and then you go into a freak-out moment like that, you're not playing that because he made it back to Earth all safe and sound and everyone's applauding. Like, he probably died up there. And I wrote this down for myself, but I feel like there's this, like, fart noise-like sound that... Comes that right, boom, 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 that boom. comes right before the vo- the vocals yeah. come in. <laughs> yeah. I was like, this sounds like a fart. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, who knows? Maybe they were trying to like do some kind of like rocket noise or something. But then we get this acoustic guitar breakdown again. Yeah, and I also want to m- mention this. So I've got a uh, I've got a two and a half year old son, and he is like super into like rocket ships and outer of space. Course. And so I played the song for him. And he picked out all of the stuff that was going on with it. Like, like not the lyrics, but the music pairing it with what the rocket ship was doing. Mm. Like they did the five through lift off and then like it does that. And he was going, the rocket ship's lifting off. That's amazing. And then at the very end, when it's doing the kind of the the really dissonant freak out stuff, he said to me, oh, the rocket ship's crashing. (laughs) I was just like, goodness gracious, you're smart. But it was just like also like that just shows how great the music did at helping tell the story and not just leaving it to the lyrics. Right. Of course, like I said, with Changes, he re-released this song after Ziggy Stardust got big and it gave him a number one hit. So, All right. As we are in the trilogy. The space trilogy. The space trilogy. This takes us into our final song of the trilogy, and that is Life on Mars? Question mark? <laughs> uh, yes, Life on Mars. Man, this is Bowie at his like creative and lyrical genius. What a strange song. What a strange song that like on paper shouldn't work, but yet somehow it does. And I wanted to take this moment to talk about Bowie's voice. Whew. Because what a voice he has. I mean, there's no one, no one that sounds like Bowie when they sing without intentionally trying to right. sound like him. It's not the most flattering voice. But somehow he makes it work. It works. Talk about a man that knew how to use his voice so well. And I think that Life on Mars is like one of his best vocal performances. I'm not going to lie. His vocals in this song kind of make me laugh. <laughs> the song kind of took a while to grow on me. I remember first hearing the song and hearing that it's like one of his greatest. Like, uh, I even saw a thing where like there was this editor that was doing like the 1,000 greatest songs of all time, and they said this was the number one wow. song. Actually, I think I've read that, that this is, many people have said that this is, like, one of the best rock songs, like, of all time, mm-hmm. which is so strange. Yeah, I'm, I remember hearing that and listening to the song originally and just going, it's it's not that good. <laughs> but the more I listen to it, the more I go, okay, I really, really like this, and I get it. The thing about this song that's so strange to me is how, like, this song, the way it's played and how it sounds, it makes you really want to sing along. Yeah. But you can't because <laughs> you, won. the song is all over the place. Like, yeah. you don't know where it's going. And then the lyrics and how, like, how like choppy it is. Mm-hmm. Like, you have no idea, like, where, where the melody is. Yeah. And with the lyrics and how crazy they are. So like, what do you think the song's about? I have no idea. 
All I know is that in order to really like get the full experience of this song, you really have to invest in the lyrics because yeah. otherwise you really have no idea what's happening. I don't know for sure what it's about either, but I'll tell you what I think it's about. I think that at the heart of it, it's just about a young person that like wants more out of their mundane life. And I think that they're seeing what life can be by looking at a TV mm. and like flipping through the channels. Cause it's all, it's all these really imaginative scenes yeah and they make different things about sitting at the silver screen and you know you're flipping from cavemen to policemen to you know all these different things i think it's what it's doing is that she's flipping through the channels and seeing how big and how wonderful the world is and wishing that she could be part of that world instead of the normal ordinary depressing world that she's in and so that's what i think it is but I don't know for sure. That's just my opinion. I mean, it's David Bowie. It could be really anything. Who knows? But I think, you know, talking about the imagination aspect of this song, I think it kind of speaks to that, how operatic the song finishes with. It's mm-hmm. almost like it's you're seeing this really grand vision of what, like you said, what life could be, and then how, like, it ends, like, in this really dramatic fashion. Like, almost mm-hmm. like you're waking up and realizing, like, oh... Never mind, like, we're back to reality. Yeah, which, uh, credit to Mick Ronson for putting all those string arrangements together. Oh my gosh, so talented. And uh, a shout-out to my boy, Rick Wakeman, (laughs) for such a great piano work on this track. All right, that gets us into our last song, and that seems to be the end of this Ziggy Stardust period because it's rock and roll suicide. Yeah, so I went through a lot of incarnations of what this set list was going to look like. And when I realized the significance and the narrative that I wanted to create with David Bowie, Rock and Roll Suicide had to be the ending. Because while the Ziggy Stardust album is not the end of that era, you still had Aladdin Sane and the cover album pinups after that. Although those albums are not near as good. Whenever they were doing the tour in 73... They were doing the last show at the Hammersmith Odeon, which is a legendary venue by itself. They were on the last song, and before he does the last song, Bowie announces to the audience, not only is this the last show of the tour, but this is the last show we'll ever do. Wow. And of course, you know, that's not true in the literal sense. He did more shows after that. But what he's saying is that this is the last show that you're going to see of this form. Like, he gets different musicians at this point. And he compl- and he sheds that uh, Ziggy Stardust persona, and he does it with the song "Rock and Roll Suicide." And so, to me, narrative-wise, it felt fitting to put this song as the end. It's the end of our chapter, and it's the end of his chapter as well. Because once he finishes this song, Ziggy Stardust is no more in his mind. This is a very emotional song. Yeah, I it- mean between. The acoustic guitar, the sad lyrics, and then that bridge breakdown that ends with kind of him screaming. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know if you could have any more literal picture of what he's trying to accomplish. Yes, where he's, you know, I just love that first line, life takes a cigarette and puts it in your mouth. <laughs> And just, you know, he's in the story. It's like this Ziggy character is old and he's, you know, had his time. And now he knows that he's about to leave. And he's kind of telling him, even though I'm going to be gone, you're not alone. There's still hope. Now my music lives with you forever. 
and, you know, go on and change your world with what I've given you. And, you know, he was, David Bowie's only like, you know, 26, 27 years old at the time that he recorded this, but he had already went through like a lifetime of, it seems, of experiences in the music industry. I mean, he started his first band when he was 15. Yeah, and had been through quite a bit up to that point and was already feeling exhausted and world-weary. And so, you know, he really is singing personally himself to his fans, telling them, you know, this version of me is going to be gone, but don't worry, you know, there's still more to come and you're still going to have this music with you forever. And so it's... Still a message of hope, which I feel like ties in really well with Starman. And I feel like the theatrics of everything really makes for a great epic finish, not only to the set, but to the Ziggy era in general. There you have it, everybody. These are the six songs that encompass the Ziggy Stardust period of his life. We're going to take a quick break. When we get back, we are going to talk about the bonus song. Stay tuned. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Good Music Podcast. We have been talking about the Ziggy Stardust era of the legendary David Bowie. But right now, we're going to talk about the bonus song. Lucas, as always, we've always had a bonus song on all of our lists. What is a bonus song for us? So the bonus song is a, um, a song from a lesser-known band or like a one-hit wonder band. And I like for it to have some kind of tenuous connection to the main artist, whether that be same genre, same time period, same country, if there's a personal connection between the bands. But it's just my way to kind of highlight some artists that I wouldn't give a full episode to. And I really like this segment because it allows me to talk about songs like Fox on the Run by Sweet, because this is such a great song. What's the connection here with David Bowie? Glam rock. Of course. This is such a 70s sounding song. Oh, yeah. Like, but like all the best parts. All the the best parts about the 70s, just like with gang vocals, you got some crunching, fuzzy guitars, and some very sweet lyrics. Oh, yeah. And like all of the, all of like the, the effects on everything. Absolutely. Like like when that first little like bouncing synth line comes in and Mm -hmm. it's got all those like sweet effects on them. Yeah. It's almost like sugar in audio form to me. Yeah. Yeah. I just, when I heard this song, I was just like, oh man, this is like a, like a bubblegum song. Yeah. This is what I would think of. It's got just enough crunch for, that I like, and the melodies are so good when they do that. Whoa, whoa, Yeah. Like, you can tell that, you know, that Queen was around at this point. And for a pop song, it's got some really heavy guitars on it. Yeah, I was, whenever I actually listened, because I always knew the chorus of this song. Yeah. When I When I listened to the song and heard the verses, I was really surprised by how heavy the verses were. I remember hearing the verses and going, this isn't the song that I'm thinking of. And then the chorus kicks in. I go, ah, okay, I get it now. But still, this is a really fun song. Oh, yeah. And honestly, what's funny is, even though this song is from the 70s, it really reminds me a lot of like a classic 80s pop song. Yeah. Like you can really kind of see like the evolution, like where pop music was going. It's when glam came back. Yep. Which is so funny because you would think it would have been died off and then all of a sudden, thanks to Van Halen? 
Uh, yeah, I would say maybe more towards like Motley Crue and mm. Poison. and Motley Crue. We'll talk about them someday. <sighs> yes. I promise. But like this song is a cornerstone of glam rock. Yeah, absolutely. Like, even though Sweet themselves didn't get like really big. And I would say they only have one other song that's like really, really awesome, which we'll maybe do in another update as a bonus song because it's so great. Like this song is just, it's just so good. And it's just fun to listen to. And you can't help but sing along to that chorus. Well, there you go. That is our episode for this week. We have talked about the legendary David Bowie. As always, Lucas, what do you leave us with? I knew about David Bowie, obviously, before researching for this episode. But my appreciation for him really deepened in preparing for this episode. Listening to a lot of the deeper cuts from that early era really made me appreciate where he was as an artist and the risks that he was taking. It made me also really appreciate the hits a lot more because I realized where they fit in the whole scope of his work. I think the biggest thing for me about David Bowie is I feel like he was a chameleon. Oh, I mean, yeah, he was, And he was always in tune with what was happening in culture. And I think that's why, like, you know, we talked about it this a little bit. That's why he was able to stick around so long. Yeah. Because he always knew what was in. Mm-hmm. And he usually was always able to predict. Like, he was kind of always trailblazing. He yeah. wasn't just hopping along what was popular. He was creating what was popular. I mean, he was the original hipster yeah. artist. Like, when I think about indie music now, like, and I listen to David Bowie, it's kind of hard not to see, like, where he where it all kind of stems from. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it stems from him. And you see all of these artists that are in danger of becoming irrelevant because they have to change their sound, but then when mm-hmm. they do, they can't do it successfully because, you know, at their core, they're not that great of musicians. They just got really, really good at one thing but couldn't stretch out into other mediums. David Bowie wasn't like that. He, like, was a true artist in, like, the purest sense of the word. And another British musician. Another, yeah, we didn't talk about that earlier. He is another. I've been saving musician. it up for this moment. Oh, good. I'm glad that you remembered because I forgot. Oh man! Again, somehow Britain just keeps pumping these guys out. Oh yeah, and uh, we're gonna be going back to Britain next week as well. I love it. So stay tuned for that. Well, that's this episode with the Good Music Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this, please subscribe. And uh, remember that we have a link in the description where you can uh, donate to this channel. We've got a lot of cool things coming down the line, so um, your contributions really help us to be able to do some new things, to upgrade our equipment. And if you like this, please tune in for our next episode. We have new episodes come out every Monday morning, 9 central. That's 9 a.m., not 9 p.m. Uh, Although it might be 9 p.m. for someone, depending on what part of the world you're in. We have listeners all over the world. I really like that. Come on, somebody. Yeah. So if if our episodes come out for you at 9 p.m., give us a shout-out. We'd like to know who's listening at 9 p.m. And, uh, again, thank you so much for listening. I'm Lucas. I'm Justin. Keep on listening to good music.